Hello, and welcome to Climate Fix Podcast. Here we dive into evidence-based solutions to climate change and various other pressing environmental issues. This podcast is created by Americans for Nuclear Energy, a pro-nuclear environmental organization. We take no money from industry or special interest groups. All donations are from individuals like you, interested in a grassroots scientific movement to solve the world's most pressing scientific problem, global climate change. We hope you approach these ideas with humanism and an open mind. Our mission statement is as follows. Nuclear energy is safe, cheap, plentiful, clean, and efficient. It has the capability to stop and reverse climate change while addressing the ever-growing demand for electricity globally. We strive to educate American citizens about this technology and to dispel misconceptions with facts. We firmly believe that both human civilization and industrialism can easily coexist with a healthy environment. Join us in helping to plan a prescription for a feverish planet, or as we like to say, a climate fix. This is your host, Phil Ord. This is your co-host, DJ LeClear. The name of this episode is called Radiation is Part of Life. We are chatting with radiation biologist, Dr. Michael Fox, professor at Colorado State University and author of the book, Why We Need Nuclear Power, The Environmental Case. We'll be talking about radiation, what it is, how it works, how it interacts with life, and how we measure it. We also get into the details on radiation and radioactivity associated with nuclear power and how the technology affects us and the environment. Lastly, we discuss why we need nuclear power and how its benefits well outweigh its risks. Much of the fear surrounding nuclear power has to do with the unknown surrounding radiation. Here, our aim is to help listeners really understand the subject in order to become more comfortable with it. Like any force of nature, it can hurt us or help us, and radiation is the same way. Too often, we only hear about nuclear radiation when something goes wrong, albeit rarely. And nuclear technology has indeed affected humans and the environment before with radiation, as we know from nuclear bombs and reactor accidents. It turns out that we are very good at mitigating radiation risk from nuclear power as a species. We know how to protect ourselves and the biosphere to the point where nuclear power is safer than all other energy sources. Radiation has benefited humanity far more than it has harmed us, being used for life-saving medical procedures and planet-saving clean energy to run our lives. We hope to convey the message that radiation is nothing to be scared of and can be our friend. So please enjoy this discussion. Knowledge is quite literally power. Here's some background on our expert, Dr. Michael Fox. He grew up on a farm in central Kansas, raising sheep and pigs and working in the wheat fields. He went to McPherson College in Kansas and got his bachelor's in physics in 1968. After college, he joined the Peace Corps and spent two years in Bolivia teaching physics at the Universidad Mayor de San Andreas in La Paz. 
Mike returned to the U.S. and began graduate studies in physics at Kansas State University. He got his master's degree in atomic physics and then took off a year to teach physics at McPherson College. After returning to KSU, he finished his Ph.D. in 1977 in physics with an emphasis in biophysics. He received a postdoctoral position at Colorado State University in the Department of Environmental and Radiological Health Sciences, where he obtained a faculty position as assistant professor and ended up spending his career at CSU. He developed a major laboratory in flow cytometry and cell sorting. He had numerous research grants studying cell and molecular aspects of cancer therapy using hypothermia. Dr. Fox taught undergraduate and graduate courses on radiation biology and cell biology. He was the major advisor of 11 PhD students and eight master's students. He developed the interdisciplinary graduate degree program in cell and molecular biology at CSU, of which he was the chair for 15 years. He also started a small business called Cytomation GTX that used flow cytometry to rapidly and sensitively analyze mutagenesis of physical and chemical agents, till the company ultimately was unsuccessful. During his year, Mike published 58 scientific papers. He continues to occasionally give lectures at CSU on nuclear power and global warming. In retirement, Mike and his wife love to travel the world and spend time with grandchildren. He also likes to spend time at the cabin he built in the mountains, hiking and fishing and playing piano and trombone. In 2009, after a career of being a professor, Dr. Fox started writing a book called Why We Need Nuclear Power, The Environmental Case, which was published in 2013 by Oxford University Press. This book should be required reading for anyone wanting to be a nuclear power activist, as it makes a very thorough examination of the benefits of nuclear power and touches on many cool subjects. It starts by outlining the reality of climate change and some of the principles behind it, explains the reality of energy concerning fossil fuels and renewables, and provides a great historical review of the principles of atomic physics. The book then really gets into the details of radioactivity and radiation. It describes and explains in simple terms the types of radiation, effects of ionizing radiation on life, how radiation is measured, how it can be dangerous, sources of radiation, and how radiation naturally occurs. It then wraps up by focusing on radiation when it comes to the use of nuclear power, specifically focusing on nuclear waste management, fuel recycling and mining, and past nuclear accidents. It ends with an overview of next generation reactor technology and a debunking of the main myths surrounding nuclear power. It is an awesome book to add to your shelf if you are interested in clean energy technology. Dr. Fox has lived a very interesting and accomplishment-filled life, and it is great we were able to get him on the podcast. I am looking forward to having this conversation because I don't think we understand radiation very well as a society. It has been cartoonishly misrepresented in media and in culture. Having an expert that actually tells us the scientific truth about radiation and sets the record straight is very important. Hopefully, we can get folks to be less scared of nuclear power by understanding radiation better.
Absolutely. As a health physicist, I am so excited to talk to Dr. Fox. Radiation biology was my favorite subject, and I love learning as much as I can about the subject. I can't wait to learn about his thoughts about some of the pressing and more controversial subjects in the field of radiation biology. Additionally, I think that we are overdue for teaching the Climate Fix podcast audience about the basics of radiation. For sure. Dr. Fox has really done a huge favor in the pro-nuclear community, especially as a professor. Many young people, unfortunately, are not taught much about nuclear technology in their pre-college education. Through the courses Dr. Fox has taught and in the lectures he has given, the reality of nuclear power has been exposed to countless young minds, helping our movement grow. His book has been a marvelous contribution to furthering the cause of clean nuclear power and combat misinformation about the subject. Absolutely. Well, let's get into it. Here's our talk with Dr. Michael Fox. Hello, Dr. Fox. I am so excited to talk to you. Um, radiation biology was actually my favorite subject uh, during my uh, health physics master's degree. So uh, welcome. Well, thank you very much, DJ. I'm very excited to be invited to be on this program and, and uh, good luck in your, in your master's program. <laughs> thank you. Sure. It's good to have you on. I've always been a little bit rusty with the uh, physics of radiation, so this will be a good, a good review for me. So let's first get started. Could you tell us how you became an advocate for nuclear power? Yeah, so I have uh, grew up, my formative years really were in the 1960s and 70s. And in a lot of ways, there's a kind of some similarities with, with now. At that time, you know, there were terrible environmental problems. There were disasters in, in uh, you know, to the point that rivers were catching on fire, like famously the Cuyahoga River in Ohio, and terrible pollution in cities and in water. And this was before there was an EPA and there was no Clean Air Act or Clean Water Act, and those were all passed during the 70s. And so there was a big environmental movement that was developing at that time, kind of like uh, environmental movement that, that is certainly important here nowadays, talking about global warming. And there were a lot of books written like Silent Spring and Limits to Growth and Population Bomb and all kinds of things that were pretty terrible pointing out the, the things going on in the environment. And that was also the beginning of when nuclear power really took off and, and was being built at a rapid rate. And so by the end of the uh, 80s into the early 90s, there were 104 nuclear reactors. But it also engendered very strong opposition from people like Helen Caldicott and Amory Lovins. And so um, I was at the time then just beginning my graduate studies at Kansas State University in physics and then actually moved kind of into biophysics. And I was uh, studying radiation and how it impacts cells and the damage it causes. So I was very interested in that and, and becoming, you know, realizing that radiation is really misunderstood by a lot of these very negative people. And so then I uh, did a postdoc at the Department of Radiation Biology in Colorado State University, where there's a great expertise on radiation all the way from 
as they always say, from the molecule to the environment. And I actually ended up spending my professional career there. Uh, and I'm an emeritus professor, retired now. And so I was doing research on cell and molecular aspects of radiation, biology, and cancer therapy. And I was teaching an undergraduate class, a junior-senior class, that emphasizes in the last part of it kind of the social or societal aspects of radiation, looking at issues about radiation for, uh, and, and uh, nuclear power. And as global warming and climate change became, began to be obviously a bigger issue, I started uh, focusing more on that and developing more information about it. So finally then when I retired, I decided, okay, I've been putting all this together, so I ought to write a book. So I wrote my book and, and uh, I still keep kind of up on things like that. That's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's good to have as many experts in academia part of the movement as possible. That's, that's great. Yeah, it's, it's interesting how you mentioned how the environmental movement was really kind of gaining steam at the same time as, as nuclear power was also gaining steam. Right. Uh, and it basically was it was ripe for, for environmental groups to kind of be opposed to it I, if, if those two things are happening at the same time. Well, and that really set the framework for a lot of the things that ended up uh, the reason that it's been very hard to continue with nuclear power or to, you know, for the reactors that were built then are still running most of them. And they've been critical to our electrical supply system. But there's still been a pretty significant pushback on the part of a lot of environmentalists against nuclear power. And, and it seems kind of wrongheaded because it's actually done an awful lot to try to minimize uh, aspects of of uh, global warming. Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, so, for our audience, I want to kind of really get into the basics of radiation. So, I'm going to ask you, uh, even though I'm coming from kind of a health physics background, I'm going to ask you some very basic questions about radiation. So. Uh, first thing I want to talk about is uh, what is radiation and what types are there? Yeah, well, as you're well aware, that's a, a quite a big question, actually, because radiation encompasses uh, a number of things. But I suppose what most people are obviously very familiar with is electromagnetic radiation. And that includes, of course, visible light and things like infrared and ultraviolet and radio waves and microwaves and all that sort of thing and then X-rays and gamma rays. And the energy of the electromagnetic radiation depends on, of course, its frequency and wavelength. And so the higher the frequency, the more energy it has. So that's one class of radiation, and people are very familiar with most all of that. Then there's what we call particulate radiation. And this is something people aren't necessarily as, as familiar with, but it's what are known as alpha particles, which are really the nuclei of helium, and beta particles that are the same thing as electrons, and protons and neutrons. And then there's some very high energy particulate radiation known as cosmic rays. Well, that's kind of general broad classifications, but in, in radiation biology, as you'll certainly know, DJ, it's more interesting to think about it in terms of what we call ionizing radiation versus non-ionizing radiation. 
<clears throat> so ionizing radiation is just uh, radiation that has the ability to ionize atoms, that is to kick electrons out of a stable atom. And that can be either electromagnetic radiation, can do that, such as X-rays or gamma rays, or particulate radiation. And it all depends on the energy, uh, how much, how frequently it can cause ionizing uh, of atoms. And then there's non-ionizing radiation, and we don't really, radiation biologists don't pay nearly as much attention to that because the radiation doesn't have enough energy to actually kick electrons out of atoms. And it can still be dangerous because ultraviolet radiation, for example, is non-ionizing. It doesn't actually kick electrons out of atoms, but it can cause cancer, of course, and it can cause different uh, chemical changes in, in DNA. So... Uh, that's basically a, a broad overview of, of what radiation is. Great. I was going to mention the, the, the fact that you mentioned, mentioned how, uh, the non-ionizing radiation. Um, I mean, there's definitely groups out there that are very interested in it. Uh, but I, I remember like for all of my classes, there was one module of one class of all of my health physics classes that we talked about non-ionizing radiation. Yeah, it's not something that really, it's not something I ever really focused on in my classes either. Uh, yeah. It's, you know, it's not the thing that most health physicists or radiation biologists uh, work on, although certainly in the past, I mean, there's been a great deal of work actually done on UV and, and how it can cause cancer. So it's not to say that's not important, but it, particularly with respect to nuclear power and issues like that, it doesn't really play a role. I love, I love mentioning to people about how, like every time you go outside, I mean, you're exposed to uh, UV radiation and uh, it's not exactly because you're, like you said, it's not, it's non ionizing radiation, but you can still have uh, the, the, the cancer effect. Um, and there is just like with, with ionizing radiation, you have that m mortality risk, I would I would love to see if there was if they could make unified units between the two to to help people understand. But yeah, I guess I don't um, have any particular comment on that. I, they the units are you know they're they're really quite distinct as in terms of how you measure ionizing radiation and and doses of that versus how you would measure that for ultraviolet radiation. So where do these forms of radiation come from and how do nuclear plants produce so much radiation and radioactive material? Well, electromagnetic radiation comes from a variety of sources. And again, that depends on what the energies are uh, as to how they're created. So, uh, you know, visible light and that's the sort of thing that we're all very familiar with basically comes from what's known as black body radiation, like when from the sun, uh, you heat any kind of an object uh, and it glows. And just like if you have a campfire, for example, and you see the colors there, that's, that's sort of like black body radiation. And it's really just energy transitions in atoms that are uh, causing energies to flip up to high energy states and drop down and they give off light. So that's where a lot of the, the light that we're most familiar with comes from. And that would also apply to things like ultraviolet radiation and infrared. And then radio waves and microwaves and things like that are generally made just by oscillating electrons or charges. 
And so if you make electrons move up and down rapidly, uh, that generates an electromagnetic wave and the frequency determines the frequency of the of the waves. Now, in the case of the more interesting ionizing radiations that that we're interested in for nuclear power uh, uh, and and medical sources that people are familiar with, like X-rays, X-rays actually can come from atoms. There are particularly heavy atoms can have energy so tightly bound that if you knock them out of the atom, then uh, electrons can fall into a lower shell and they give off an X-ray. So it can come from that, but what people are mostly familiar with are X-ray machines that really are just a source of electrons that are accelerated into a target material, and then they crash into the material, and when they slow down, they give off X-rays. So that's what an X-ray tube is, and depending on the energy of the electrons, it determines what the kind of of X-rays will be. Then gamma rays come from the nucleus in radioactive decay and fission. So uh, that only is, uh, well, particularly is important in in radioactive decay from things like radium and uranium and plutonium and things like that. But uh, the main thing that we get uh, from fission, for example, uh, is that you get a lot of particles coming out and you get gammas, but there are particles that are created. And in radioactive decay, you get alpha particles and beta particles. And in fission, when you split the heavy nucleus into two pieces, you can get lots of these particular radiations like alphas and betas and neutrons and protons. So uh, in response to your question about why nuclear power is such a strong source of that, when you split uh, a, uh, an atom of uranium, you split it into two unequal pieces, usually centered around uh, elements that have a, a number, uh, an atomic number of around 90 or so and around 140. And the nuclei are very unstable in that. And so they often undergo a lot of different radioactive decays emitting uh, betas, which are electrons that can be either positive or ne- negative electrons, and lots of gammas and neutrons. And so all of these particles uh, are very plentiful in a nuclear reactor. And uh, so they have to be uh, carefully taken care of. And of course, in the case of a of a, an accident, then those are the, the kinds of things that you have to worry about. And then there are cosmic rays that I mentioned before. Those are about 90% are very high energy protons. And um, then uh, most of the rest are alpha particles and and a small fraction of electrons. These are incredibly energetic. They come from the galaxy and some even from extragalactic sources. And they have energies that are like 100 million times as high of energies as the highest energy protons from the Large Hadron Collider, so they're pretty remarkable particles. Almost like bullets. Well, exactly right. Yeah, I mean they, they're yeah they they're very penetrating and and if we didn't have an atmosphere, then we'd be in really deep trouble. And especially the magnetosphere too. If we didn't have that, we'd be bombarded with particles. Well, that's exactly right. 
And of course, they're they're what caused the aurora borealis too. <laughs> right. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, do you know? Uh, I know that I've heard the ninety percent uh, of the uh, cosmic radiation is is protons. Mm-hmm. Do you know how much actually makes it through our atmosphere and actually hits like? The Earth, like what? What is the percent of uh, contribution to dose actually from from cosmic? Like what? Which? Well, it's it's really not so much the cosmic rays themselves. They don't really make it down to to Earth because they interact with the atmosphere and then they cause a variety. There, they have collisions, and so they end up creating muons and things like that. And a lot of the dose comes from muons, which are just heavy electrons. And so uh, there's very little of the primary particles that we get. Now, if you're in the space station, then you're going to get some of that. And you can, uh, astronauts can see that happen when uh, you can get a cosmic particle, cosmic rays, it's called going through your eye, for example, and it'll cause scintillation and and you can see a bright track go through your eyeball. So uh, people uh, in outer space and space travelers in general will, in fact, you know, be more subject to that. But, but here on Earth, it isn't. Uh, it does, of course, it's elevation dependent. It depends on the density of the atmosphere. So the higher in elevation you get, the more likely you are to have that. So flying in an airplane is more likely that there would be some of that. But so yeah, it's a you know it it varies, but probably none of the high energy protons make it to the surface of the Earth. Gotcha, gotcha. It's it's interesting you mentioned space radiation. Uh, I know in for for my graduate degree, one of the programs or the little or the subset <laughs> of programs that they're they're planning on doing is a space radiation subset because. There's so much interest in space right now and going to yeah. Mars. Right. CSU has been involved in that for years and they've had a, for decades, they've had programs associated with NASA to study precisely those sorts of things. Awesome. Well, let's get into a little bit more on how these sources of radiation can, uh, of ionizing radiation can affect life systems. Yeah. So, Ionizing radiation um, can, of course, it can cause cancer. We're all aware of that, I think. And it can kill cells. It can cause mutations. But also it can cure cancer. And so there's this kind of dichotomy about radiation that, that it, we always talk about in, in radiation biology. On the one hand, uh, you use radiation to cure cancer. And on the other hand, it can cause cancer. And so... Um, That's uh, a distinction that we need to understand the underlying biology of that, and we can talk about that maybe. But there also, then in a larger sense, you can have changes in ecology in entire environments. If you have a, a contaminated area, it can affect the distribution of species because some plant species and uh, are much more sensitive to radiation than others are. So it can cause effects like that. But um, the main thing is that ionizing radiation can can affect cells and either cause mutations in them or cancer. And then that's, of course, the kind of things that we're, 
we're particularly concerned about. And then, of course, it can also cause cells to die. And if you have too many cells die in certain tissues, then, of course, the, the organism can die. The whole body uh, dies. And that's true, of course, for animals or, or humans or plants or anything else if it's an extremely high dose. Right. And uh, the things that you need to be careful with is your genetic information because that's the instructions to pretty much survive. And uh, it has various effects on, on, on the DNA. If, uh, if, if you let it, can we go into a few of the, uh, the ways it affects your DNA and genetic code? Oh yeah, sure. I think that's, that's important to talk about. And so First of all, generally, you're talking about ionizing radiation, uh, although ultraviolet radiation can cause uh, damage to the DNA also. And so uh, you have um, charged particles that come crashing into a cell, for example, or gammas or x-rays. Uh, they ionize atoms, and the ionization is is not... It's kind of an interesting pattern. With gammas or X-rays, the ionizations tend to come in little clusters of two or three ionizations, but they're what's known as the track density or how as a, as a, a gamma or an X-ray goes through a cell, it actually acts more like a particle than an electromagnetic wave the way most people probably thinking about it, and we call them photons, and they really have effects very much like a particle. And they can knock an electron out of a, an atom, and then they can go quite a distance and nothing will happen. And then they'll have another series of interactions and cause another little cluster of damage, and then go on and that'll happen somewhere else. With uh, particulate radiation, Electrons actually look very much like X-rays because, in fact, what X-rays do or gamma rays is they knock electrons out. And then those electrons go on and cause a lot of the effects, ionizing other atoms. So uh, then there are the alpha particles, for example, that are they have uh, they're like a helium nucleus, as I mentioned. And that means they have two positive charges and then they have two neutrons in this nucleus. So they interact very strongly through their charges with electrons, and they can be much more damaging. So along their track, they create uh, just almost a continuous uh, track of damage. So if you look at a double-stranded DNA and look at the distribution of that, of this damage from electrons and gammas, it's quite possible that an electron, there will be some ionizations near the DNA, and then maybe nothing at all will happen in the DNA itself, and the next cluster will be beyond that. And so it may not do anything, although there's an auxiliary way that it can still affect the DNA is that it can cause free radicals to be formed, and they can migrate in and attack the DNA because they're very reactive molecules. But uh, with a double with a um, alpha particle, the density is so great that when it traverses a, a, a double strand of DNA, it almost certainly will just break it apart. So the effects on DNA are mostly causing things that we call single strand breaks, where you break one strand of the DNA, 
or double strand breaks where you break both strands and then the DNA can separate. And so that leads to a type of uh, we call chromosomal aberration. So there are changes in the chromosomes themselves. So the DNA in a chromosome can be broken apart and the, the ends can separate. And uh, so you can get breaks, you can get deletions, you can delete a part of a chromosome, you can fuse chromosomes together, but you don't get very many point mutations. That's not really nearly as common with radiation as single strand and double strand breaks. So what are the consequences of that? Well, uh, if you get a lot of that, uh, you can kill the cell. So the cells can't successfully continue to divide. And by cell death, in, in radiobiology terms, we really mean the inability for a cell to continue to divide. So it could functionally be still, uh, still living, but if it can't divide, it can't ever develop into a cancer. On the other hand, if you get too much uh, damage, then the cell dies. And if you do if you get really high doses of like four gray, and we'll probably talk about that later, what doses are, but that's enough to actually kill the, the a human. And uh, there are different syndromes for that that are caused the hematopoietic and the, and the gastrointestinal syndromes. And those are based on certain sensitive cell populations in the body that are more sensitive to radiation than others. Or it can affect gene functions. These chromosomal changes that occur, they can uh, lead to creating what are known as oncogenes, which are cancer genes that promote cell growth and make cancers more likely. And there are also tumor suppressor genes that suppress cell growth. So these are kind of like the gas pedal and the brakes on cell growth, the oncogenes and the tumor suppressor genes. And so um, if you... If you get a deletion, say, for where there's a tumor suppressor gene, then that can allow the cell to grow much more rapidly. And that's kind of the first step along the way to creating cancer. So that's the kind of damage that happens to DNA. But what a lot of people don't realize is that cells also have remarkable capabilities to repair all of that damage. Right. And so life evolved on Earth in a very high radiation environment. Uh, because there was a lot of uranium in in the earth and and uh, there was also a lot of uh, UV radiation there was so it was a very uh, a much more radioactive environment than it is now so bacteria when they evolved they developed methods for repairing breaks in DNA and that continued as cells evolved and it continues today and all of our cells and and all kinds of living organisms have the capability of repairing DNA. So they can repair these single strand breaks and double strand breaks and point mutations with high fidelity. And so the vast majority of DNA damage from ionizing radiation gets repaired. And that's something that I think most people don't really have any idea of because it greatly affects how uh, serious a particular dose of radiation is. Yeah, so I assume it's it, it has to do with at what point do the damage of a particular source of radiation overwhelm the repair mechanisms, and then at that point is probably when you get the the cell death and the damage. And right, 
chromosomal abnormalities. So, right, it's strictly a dose-dependent thing, and you can do studies on that. And 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 so there's, I mean, there's just an incredible amount of of experiments that have been done to determine these things on cells and. And so it's really extremely well understood, and we know an awful lot about uh, just what dose it takes to cause that. And and so you know it's it's something that um, is probably that kind of damage is pro- from radiation is probably better understood than almost any other kind of of toxic damage to cells. Yeah, I was just about to say that, like radiation, we or just because of our, I would say because of our fear of it, but uh, like we know so much about radiation and it's so funny listening to you. I feel like I'm back in my, my radiation biology course right now. I'm like, oh, you're saying all these things that <laughs> I got to learn about. <laughs> well, that yeah. is kind of what we're doing here. I'm giving yep. you a short yep. course in radiation biology. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> All right. So I'll, I'll go ahead and get on to our next question here. But uh, so how do we measure radiation? And can you tell us about exposure and dose? Okay. Well, as you're aware, it's kind of complicated. <laughs> uh, at a fundamental level, uh, radiation dose is just an amount of energy that gets deposited in a mass of material. So I was talking about these ionizations and stuff. So when when you have radiation impinging on uh, water or uh, you know any kind of material, it causes these ionizations and it loses energy. So that energy gets deposited in the material. So um, uh, and how that happens sort of depends more on the kind of radiation. So X rays and gamma rays are absorbed exponentially in the material. That is, at the surface, you get the highest interactions, and then it drops off exponentially as you go through the material. And it depends on the energy of the X-rays or gamma rays to begin with. And then, of course, it depends also on the material that you're radiating. So, um, for example, that's why you do X-rays to look at bones, is if you use relatively low energy X-rays in the order of, well, what's called uh, in KEV, I guess I should define that. But uh, anyway, relatively uh, weak X-rays, they will penetrate skin quite well, but they're not sufficiently able to penetrate bone. They get absorbed more effectively. So then you get an X-ray that shows the bone as dark because it's absorbing them. So uh, that's how you get the energy deposited and charged particles uh, they actually do it through a somewhat different process and how they distribute that through the material is more, it, they just give off at a kind of a steady rate. And then at the end, as they slow down, they become much more damaging. And so you get a cluster of damage kind of at the end of the track. And so, uh, there's different ways to consider what the radiation dose is, how to measure it. So the principal fundamental thing is just called absorbed dose or D and it's given in units called grays and it's named after a famous radiobiologist and uh, he it's one defined as one joule per kilogram and particularly in the United States and I don't know if you are people are still talking at all about rads they're not really supposed to anymore but that's the old terminology in the U.S. and 
And, and we are. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I thought maybe you were. And so I thought I would throw that in there. Uh, technically, we're not we're supposed to just talk about grays and milligrays and so forth. But uh, so that's just uh, a certain amount of energy, a joules deposited in a kilogram of material. And it doesn't tell you anything about what the material is, it, but that's just the definition. However, when you're talking about biology, uh, you'd like to know more about how it's going to affect the biology. And so they've come up with a, another kind of dose called equivalent dose. And the, the basis for that is that different kinds of radiations cause more biological damage. I've already kind of talked about why that is. If an alpha particle comes in, it's much more densely ionizing. And as you can imagine, it's going to be more damaging than a track of an electron. And that's exactly the case. So there are international committees that look at experiments that determine what's called the relative biological effectiveness of different types of radiation. And the endpoints can be all kinds of things. So it's a little bit vague in exactly what that means. These aren't, you know, they're not... Uh, extremely precise because they can differ depending on what endpoint you're looking at. But nevertheless, in general, X-rays and gamma rays and electrons are all the same, and they're given a weighting factor called the radiation weighting factor of 1. Whereas alpha particles have a radiation weighting factor of 20, then protons are more than X-rays or gamma rays, but they're about 2, and neutrons vary all over the place depend because they have a lot of unusual interactions. And so they can range from about five to about 20. So what that means is if you have uh, the exact same amount of energy deposited in a biological system from x-rays versus from alpha particles, the damage will be 20 times greater in the uh, from the alpha particles. And so that would have a dose, they're called sieverts, and right. again, after a, a scientist, or also called RIM. If you talk about RADs, then you talk about RIM. And so sieverts are the way you determine that. So one gray of, of electrons would cause that same amount of energy. The same amount of energy in a sievert would cause 20 times as much damage if it was from alpha particles. So that would then be 20 sieverts. So it, it's a really big factor and you have to take that into account. That's what a lot of the uh, radiation detectors, people uh, like traveling to Chernobyl, they'll use the Seavert. That's the one I'm familiar with. So Right. That, that's what is usually, that's how things should be stated if you're talking about effects on, on biology. Um, <clears throat> and then I guess, uh, I, I think you asked about a natural radiation. And uh, so radioactivity is something that is, uh, well, it has units also. It's called Becquerels, again, after, <laughs> after a scientist in, in radiation. And it's uh, one disintegration per second of a, of a nucleus. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty small unit, actually. They use that one to measure radon levels and stuff. That's exactly right. Yeah, it's so many disintegrations in a cubic meter of, of air. 
And so, yeah, that's right. It used to use a unit called Curie's, which is much bigger. It's 3.7 times 10 to the 10th <laughs> disintegrations per second. So then you'd have microcuries. And so now you have lots of Becquerels and <laughs> or a few microcuries. So it's a kind of a complicated thing to talk about. And we're still using Curie's in the, in the government. <laughs> uh, <laughs> There's loads and loads of different radiation measurement units out there. It's it's like you have to kind of collect them all. Well, that's why I say it's kind of complicated because you have to really know what you're talking about. And so, um, yeah, but in general, in terms of biology and when you're talking about accidents and, and radio radioactivity in the environment, you're usually talking about sieverts. So uh, I, I did want to say a little bit about natural background that you asked about. We were getting there. We didn't quite ask about it yet. Oh, you didn't? I thought... No, not yet, but... Yeah, if you want to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's really important because I think it's it's kind of the way that you can get a sense of how important uh, radiation is from an accident or other kinds of things that, that humans might cause to, to have more radioactivity or more radiation in the environment. So the background is radiation that comes from cosmic rays, as we talked about. And the overall natural background radiation, the U.S. average is 3.2 millisieverts. And cosmic rays cause a part of that. And as we talked about, that depends on elevation. So if you live at higher uh, elevations, then you're going to get more of that. And in general, here in Colorado, we live higher than people on the coast, for example, or in the Midwest. And so we get higher doses from that. And then you have external radiation from primordial sources. These are like from radium and uranium and thorium. And again, that matters if you live in the mountains. It's Those tend to come from granite-bearing rock has uh, generally has those kinds of materials in it. And so you get gamma ray exposure and and so that also is is in them, primarily in the mountains. And then we all get internal radiation from things we eat. That's called primordial internal, and that comes primarily from potassium. There's an isotope of potassium called potassium forty that that uh, is radioactive, and uh, we mostly you get that from eating a lot of bananas and things like Brazil nuts and uh, red meat and potato chips do too yep. yeah and so it's not like a, a really big kind of a thing i think i've remember uh studies that showed that if you ate about 600 bananas that would be about the equivalent of a chest x-ray so it's it's uh relatively benign but nevertheless we do take in constant radiation that way and then radon is the largest contributor, probably two-thirds or so of the background on average for Americans of so that 3.2 millisieverts comes from, from radon. But it varies pretty dramatically by location also and tends to be higher in mountainous areas. Uh, but it's something that, that you can be exposed to pretty much throughout the, the United States. And that's millisieverts per year, right? Yes, that's millisieverts per year. So that's the average of 3.2 millisieverts per year, and it's all of those pieces. However, what you need to realize is because of the, how much it varies geographically, well, the, one of the things that I always tell my students when they 
the first day in class when they come, I ask how many are from Florida or Texas. Uh, and, and so then I asked them if when they decided to come to Colorado State University uh, for school, did they consider that they were going to nearly triple their exposure to radiation? And of course, none of them had any idea what I was talking about. But in fact, like in Florida, the average background is only about half of what it, the U.S. average is. It's about 1.6 millisieverts, whereas in Colorado, the average is about 4.4 millisieverts. And in Leadville, it's about five and a half millisieverts because it's much higher and it's in the mountains. And so for all these reasons, it varies a lot. And so one of the things about considering how radiation affects you is you have to recognize that people live in quite different radiation environments. And a lot of regulations, people worry about things like a millisievert. The EPA worries about that a lot. And yet that is something that you can dramatically change your exposure in, in that range by simply moving to Colorado. And yet Colorado has among the lowest rates of cancer in the United States, even though we have about the highest levels of, of background radiation. Yeah, that's interesting. I think we need to, when talking about radiation, it's always a good thing is to compare it to what are the background levels. And if we start talking about fractions of background levels, then we can kind of relax a little bit, you know? Right. Yeah, I, I should also mention that along with, well, natural radioactivity, but also the exposures that we get, it, it turns out that over the past oh, decade or two, medical procedures, of course, have become um, much more prominent, especially with the advent of CAT scans or CT scans and that sort of thing. So on average, Americans also get three millisieverts from medical procedures. And so the average overall is 6.2 millisieverts for an average American. And of course, we in Colorado, if we had average number of medical procedures, we would have much higher levels than that also. But that is something that can be very personal. You don't have to necessarily get all these procedures if you're super healthy and don't break a lot of bones and that sort of thing. Then you aren't necessarily going to have any exposure from medical procedures. So that's a much more variable kind of thing. Right. And a little bit, you know, going to talk about the dose is the poison. You've got to compare it to what are we naturally given from the environment for radiation. And I, I think a little bit of that ties into the linear no threshold model. So many scientists rely on the linear no threshold model to calculate risk from radiation. What is the LNT model of radiation? Well, as you said, it's, it's used to calculate risk from radiation, but this is a model that it actually has a pretty long history. Um, it was originally developed by, by Mueller, who did the work on Drosophila fruit flies looking at genetics. And, and he decided that his data supported the idea that there was there was a linear uh, that the rate of or the number of mutations versus dose was linear and down to the lowest doses. But this was in fruit flies. And um, he was very prominent in radiation circles. And when oh, uh, there's a National Academy of Sciences committee, a government committee was formed 
back in the, I don't know exactly when, but in the late 30s, early 40s, called the bio, bio, Biological Effects of Atomic Radiation, so-called BEAR. And they had a report looking at, at uh, the risks of radiation, and Muller was very influential in saying that the risks were linear and and no threshold. No threshold just means it's clear down to zero dose. There's an effect, and it's a linear effect. Subsequently, there were a number of what are the, the committee chain changed to be called the Beer Committee, the Biological Effects of Ionizing Radiation, and there's have been seven of those. The latest one, Beer 7, was in about 2009, I think, and about every decade or so, they produce another one. And so they have used this model, the linear no threshold model. And But you have to ask, well, where did the data come for that? And so Mueller, of course, was very influential in that. But you can't, of course, irradiate people in experiments and determine this sort of thing. And experiments on cells and animals also can't really determine it because people just aren't the same as cells and other animals in their response to radiation. So at very low doses, all the concern happens is down in the range of, say, below 100 millisieverts. And so the, the LNT uh, hypothesis really says that you can extrapolate from the very high doses down to the low doses. And we have a lot better data on the high doses because historically people have been exposed to accidents there have been medical procedures like, oh, back in my day, actually, when I was in high school, we had big vans would come around and they were doing x-rays for TB. And they, you got high doses from these sort of things because things weren't really regulated that well back then. And there were lots of uh, big studies that were done where women were being, uh, they were treating uh, breast cancer or actually treating mastitis. And so there are some, a variety of medical reports at high doses. And so in the end, they put all this data together and look at the consequences of the, the effects on cancer uh, from dose of radiation. Now, none of these sources are good enough. And so after the bombing of Japan in 1945 in World War II, the survivors of that, which were, there were about um, 200,000 survivors in the two cities, and a combined uh, research foundation was formed between Japan and the United States called the Radiation Effects Research Foundation. And they started a lifespan study of looking at survivors. And I think they had about 120,000 uh, people ultimately enrolled in it that with controls and people that had been exposed to various doses. And they could actually, these were people for which they could determine accurate doses when they were uh, in the cities at the time of the bombing. And so they followed these people uh, until they die and look at, at what, what they die of, what cancers they get. So this is the largest and the best data from, uh, to determine the LNT. So most of those data, again, are at, at relatively high doses, and you have to extrapolate down to low doses of less than around 100 millisieverts. And the ultimate outcome of that, the conclusions then are that, according to the LNT, that 
the cancer mortality risk is about 4% per sievert. And you can extrapolate that down to a tenth of a millisievert if you want to, and you could say, okay, there's a certain risk. And that's where it gets really tricky when you extrapolate this down to really low levels. And uh, so, and, and that's, if you include children, by the way, the, since they're actually more sensitive to radiation, uh, then you would have about 8% perceiver. So that's what the LNT model is about, and that's what the EPA uses in setting radiation exposure, exposure standards. So that kind of gets into some of the issues with it is it extrapolates down so far to where any small, tiny dose of radiation can come with a certain increased risk. Is that is that are they finding that that's actually true in real life? Well, that is a really good question, and and I would say that that it's really quite controversial among radiation scientists uh, that 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 makes sense to do that. And in fact, the data just simply aren't good enough to determine that. There's actually a lot of data that indicates that below about 100 millisieverts, there aren't any effects at all. But the data have large error bars on them, so it's hard to definitively say that. So, but, so there's really not good statistical data but below about, oh, 50 to 100 millisieverts. But most data in a variety of kind of experiments show there's no radiation effects measurable in that range. Now, biology has changed, though, since all of these concepts were happening. There have been a lot of things discovered about how cells respond to, to various kinds of toxic agents and, and damaging agents such as, as uh, radiation. And there's a, a response that's now known as the adaptive response or hormesis that is very common for virtually all toxic agents. As a matter of fact, uh, when I was doing research for about a decade or so, I did a lot of work on hyperthermia, that is heating cells, and it was used as a form of cancer therapy, and in fact still is in some places. And one of the things we found out very early on, and other scientists working on this, is that if you give fractionated doses of heat, uh, and this is certainly true with radiation also, when you give a first dose and then uh, if you follow that up um, at several hours later or 12 hours later or so with another dose, the second dose is much less effective. And that's an adaptive response. And you turn on things like heat shock, prote heat shock proteins that make the cells much more resistant to subsequent doses. And that clearly happens with radiation also. And so a lot of the studies that have been done in all kinds of biological systems seem to suggest that not only with radiation, but with heavy metals, with all kinds of things, there's an adaptive response. And so when cells are per first exposed to a, a low dose, a very low dose of some toxic agent, they develop a, an adaptive response and subsequent doses are much less effective. So what that leads to is the, the idea, well supported by data actually, that there really aren't any measurable effects at, at over a fairly wide range of low doses. And so the no threshold 
is the part of the LNT that doesn't make too much sense. It's clearly linear at higher doses, but down in the range of below about 100 millisieverts, it's a lot of biology suggests that that is there's a threshold. There's no consequence whatsoever. And if the EPA would recognize that, uh, and there's been a lot of people that have pushed this, uh, well, DJ will probably note the Health Physics Society a number of years ago had a formal yep. uh, statement that they think the LNT is completely wrong, shouldn't be used as the basis for, for this. But the EPA is still digging in their heels about this and I think is is kind of ignoring a lot of biology that suggests that at these low doses, and especially when you get down around background levels, a few millisieverts, that uh, it's absurd to try to say that there's a cancer risk from it. And that applies to radon levels as well in houses. And so you get remediation or you, you have a huge expensive project trying to remediate things that lots of people in the world live with higher background levels anyway, and they have no consequences. So it is a big societal problem. And furthermore, it has scared the hell out of people. So they think radiation always is going to cause some damage. And that's almost certainly not true. So you're kind of saying that we should definitely perhaps rethink LNT and maybe replace it with something better. Oh, I definitely think that's the case. Yeah, I think, well, I think what you do is you just recognize that that in a certain range, you shouldn't be making regulations that that assume that just extrapolating the high doses down in that range is valid and look at the actual data. A lot of the data are, is really ignored because the mantra of LNT is so ingrained that that's kind of the default way of looking at it. And any other thing has to prove that it's, it's better than that. But you're in a range of statistical data that that's never going to be the case. It's not really going to be possible to prove it because it's so low of doses, you can't get any human exposure that's going to definitively say that. So you have to depend on basic biology. And I think the answer there is pretty clear. I find it interesting how you say you have to prove it. It's it, to me, it's like it's almost like proving a negative, right? <laughs> and it's like it's like trying to to prove that Russell's teapot's not out there uh, somewhere in space. <laughs> well, right. You could take the point, and I think they should take the point. Is say prove that there is an effect, and that that isn't proven. It's an assumption at this point. It's interesting. There, I know you may, maybe you could speak better to this, but I know that there are for other toxic agents out there that have the stochastic effects, such as cancer. Uh, a lot of them they do assume a kind of LNT with it, um, but they because it's not radiation, they they seem to respond to it differently than they do radiation. Like with radiation, they have a set, like, don't go over this. Like, this is a no-go. Um, and then even if you get below that that no-go, you need to do a LARA and, and re re reduce your dose as, as low as reasonably achievable. But for other agents, I know they have that kind of dose that they say, okay, let's go ahead and see what are, how much would it cost for us to, to reduce this dose? Um, and if it's cost-effective enough, 
uh, and it's not going to cause societal issues. Let's go ahead and see if we can reduce that dose a little bit. Um, what do you think thoughts about like doing it like that, like other toxic agents and chemical agents? Well, I think that is really what should happen. And in fact, I think what you're kind of alluding to is that it's been known for a long time and is pretty accepted for a lot of toxic agents that, that mm-hmm. well, they, they know they have what they call biphasic curves. And so at low doses, they know there's a different response than at higher up. And so that's kind of accepted with like a lot of heavy metals and a lot of toxic agents. Uh, it, it's not really my field. I, I'm not an expert on those sort of things, but I think that in fact, the standards are set that way. And so that you tolerate a certain level and you try to figure out where does it become something that's really a health risk. And they recognize that actually there is kind of a threshold. It's just that radiation, a lot of it, as I alluded to, comes from history and it's kind of ingrained and it's very hard to change that. And of course, what has always been said, well, if we're right, what harm does it do? If, you know, I mean, if, if we're right, then we need to do that to protect people. If we're wrong, how big of a deal is it? Well, it actually is a big deal if, they're, if it's wrong because it can potentially cause society huge expenses. It can set back nuclear power, for example, because people think the consequences are far worse about mining or anything in the, in the whole uh, cycle associated with, with nuclear power. And therefore, it is a big cost. It's a huge cost, for example, dealing with waste because it has real real implications uh, fiscally on what you can do to, to deal with this. So it's not just a benign policy. Yep, yep. So I'm going to take a little bit of a, a gear shift here. Let's go ahead and talk about uh, some of the familiar nuclear accidents, uh, such as Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, Fukushima, can you tell us uh, a little bit about what was and um, is the extent of radiological effects of those incidents? Well, yeah, I, I can. And it's, it's really uh, quite interesting. Three Mile Island, uh, of course, that was in 1979. And that was the thing that really kind of <laughs> shut down nuclear power as far as building any more reactors in the United States. And in fact, a number of reactors were actually not finished that had already been started. And uh, I, I don't want to go into too much the details of it, of course, but it, the containment building of the reactor, uh, you know, it was a meltdown, but the containment building held and only some radioactive gases were released. And there was really no health consequences from the radiation at all. Just there was psychological fear. People were evacuated, it, a lot of chaos. And of course it was scary. And it's the first big accident, really, that had happened. But in later studies looking at doses, the maximum dose to anybody associated with that was less than background in Colorado. So no radiological effects at all. Uh, There were effects that had to do with actually making nuclear much safer because it changed a lot of the training for reactors and it it changed the design of the control panels. And so it actually made the nuclear industry much safer. My my job is actually because of that. <laughs> I do radiological right? emergency response. Yeah. So oh yeah. I wouldn't have a job if it wasn't for Three Mile Island. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, and and what a lot of people don't know is that, you know, there were two reactors there and it was reactor number two and reactor number one continued to function and and actually should still be functioning for another decade or more. But unfortunately, because of uh, issues with uh, the the well, with price of natural gas and things, a lot of reactors are getting shut down now. And, and this, the other reactor on Three Mile Island shut down. But, you know, it, it continued to run for a long time and cranked out a lot of good energy. All right. So Chernobyl, of course, was in 1986. And it was uh, caused by uh, a reactor design that was only in Russia that uh, was kind of a unique and, and a very poor design, actually. And it was also caused by operator error doing procedures that were certainly not allowed. And it, it led to the reactor blowing up from actually a, a hydrogen explosion, most likely. It certainly wasn't a, a nuclear explosion, but it did spew radiation around in the environment and released several radionuclides that are important to, to understand. Uh, one of the principal ones is iodine-131 that's pretty much always released in any kind of a nuclear accident. Um, and it has an eight-day half-life, so it doesn't last very long, but it gets spread around and lands on grass, for example, and cows eat the grass, and it goes right to their milk, and people drink milk, especially kids, and it the iodine goes right to the thyroid. So it can cause thyroid cancer in kids. And in fact, there were about 5,000 cases of thyroid cancer in kids as a result of that. And that led to about, there were 15 deaths the last time I looked at it. And I, there may be more now, but it's unlikely to have really increased because it was a long time ago. And one of the things about thyroid cancer is it's probably the most treatable cancer that there is. And so it very seldom is lethal to people. Then there was a radiation called cesium-137 that mimics potassium, and it has a 30-year half-life, but uh, actually it's secreted out of your body with a 110 biological uh, half-life. So you actually, if you ingest cesium-137, it'll actually be secreted out of your body in, in a couple of years or so. There won't be much left. And it binds to clay soils, but nevertheless, it is one of the major kinds of radiations you'll get. And then strontium-90. So all these things happen, and that leads to the, the overall increased background radiation that's in the exclusion zone around Chernobyl. But that's really not uh, what has caused any cancers. The, the main uh, results of in terms of health effects from that are on the operators and the firefighters and the people that cleaned up the reactors. So this is one of the few uh, cases where there are actually high enough radiation doses to cause these syndromes we talked about before, the, like the hematopoietic and the, and the gastrointestinal syndromes. And I think uh, 28 firefighters were killed from that. And if you ever saw the HBO Chernobyl series, you can. it was really a pretty good accurate depiction of the what was going on at the time and this was truly an amazing thing to deal with but uh the firefighters a lot of them uh did end up dying so 28 of them the blast killed the two two operators that that actually sort of caused this thing to begin with and there were 19 more people that died from 
not directly related to radiation, apparently not really quite certain. So about 51 people died within a few months of the accident. And most of those really from, from these very high levels of, of dose that are upwards of five gray and extending up into probably 10 gray or so. Then there were a huge number of people that were called the liquidators or the people that cleaned up uh, the whole area afterwards. And there were on the order of 600,000 people exposed to average doses of about 100 millisieverts. And then there were uh, uh, people that were evacuated from it and a lot of people living in the town of Pripyat and in Chernobyl or Chernobyl, the town nearby there, got exposures. And so they were all uh, evacuated and there were about 350,000 people uh, that had doses up to maybe 50 millisieverts or so over a 20-year time span. So that's actually uh, uh, not, that's not as much as we get just living in Colorado, actually, over that time span. And then 5 million or so people in certain hotspot areas where when the cloud of radiation went around it, it dropped off in different places where there were rainstorms and particularly in Belarus and Ukraine and, and uh, Russia, there were some places. So there were uh, uh, about 5 million people that got some dose of radiation. So anyway, if you do studies on this and there was a, a uh, the World Health Organization uh, put out a pretty definitive study called the Chernobyl Forum in uh, the late 2000s, 2006 or seven or something like that. And they concluded that there could be a net expectation of about 4,000 deaths eventually. And that's based on an LNT model. And it's quite likely an overestimate, but uh, that would be certainly an upper limit. And the, the thing is that in those populations of people, there'll be so vastly many more people that just naturally get cancer from other causes that you'll never be able to find out who those people were. And then there are effects on the environment. So you, I don't know if you ever heard of what was at the time, it was really a big thing called the red forest because um, a lot the pine trees, there were a lot of pine trees in that area and they, they're quite sensitive to radiation. So they died off. And the needles turned red. And, of course, if you lived in Colorado in the last 10 years and, and saw the pine beetle infestation, you see basically the same thing. The pine beetles killed the trees and then the needles turned red. So it was really just that they were killing them. But now the area around there is a wild forest. Pripyat, the town there, I've been there and, and it's just uh, totally overgrown with trees and shrubs and grasses and all kinds of plants. And, and the whole exclusion zone really is a, a wild forest and it's a, it's a place where, where wildlife is just thriving because people mm -hmm. are excluded. And so there are, there are um, uh, packs of wolves and, and there's bears and moose and uh, a lot of different species of birds. And so it's quite a remarkable place. It's like animal sanctuary. <laughs> yeah, it really is. And I, I certainly hope that they'll never decide to ever try to do any more cleanup of it and let people move back in because it's just a wonderful uh, environmental preserve for animals. And then, okay, so that's kind. Of, that's really the only accident that has actually caused any 
any uh, deaths. That for, so Fukushima, which of course was in 2011, and everybody will be more familiar with that maybe, and, and of course it was caused by a tsunami that killed about 19,000 people. But there's been no deaths caused by radiation from that. You still got iodine-131, cesium-137, and maybe some strontium-90. But uh, the there were not sufficient levels in places where people lived to be really a health hazard. And the major problem, actually, is that they evacuate a lot of these towns, which when they probably shouldn't have. And again, it's kind of based on this this LNT extrapolation. And there were a lot of elderly people that were evacuated. And uh, I've seen studies that about 1,600 people died from the evacuation. And these particularly are older people that are much more resistant to radiation than younger people. And so there almost certainly would have been far fewer consequences. There wouldn't have been any problems from the radiation itself. So, uh, so really, there are no no cancers that will result from that, almost certainly. I mean, there could be one or two possibly, but you would never be able to prove that, and there's no reason to think that there is. Of course, the cleanup is a tremendous problem and all that, but, but in terms of just health effects, there really aren't any radiation-related health effects from that. Outside of, again, the, you know, people being evacuated and then the stress, it actually causes a lot of issues for people when, of course, it's chaotic and people are scared and and don't know what to think. And so that actually causes more health problems than the radiation itself does. Yeah, I, I, it's, it's very interesting what you're mentioning, all the, all the, all the little things that you're mentioning there. I actually, uh, for both my undergrad and my master's, I did Fukushima as like my capstone. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, so I did what I, what I did for my master's is I, I gave basically the whole background on Fukushima and I actually studied the, or did the relocation and it was mm-hmm. like, is relocation a, or was relocation warranted after Fukushima? Yeah. Um, and what would be a better way to go about recommending relocation uh different than saying uh okay if if it's a greater than uh what are we saying 20 millisieverts yeah uh yeah move permanently like that's pretty <laughs> low but yeah 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 well i think that's right you there you know unfortunately <laughs> It's a big panic situation, of course, and it was greatly uh, amplified there because the horrific effects of the tsunami just totally shattered the entire infrastructure. So that made everything so many times worse. And just, and everybody trying to deal in that kind of a chaotic environment, it's it just really a very trying situation. And, and so... You know, people tried to do what they thought was the best thing to do, but ultimately it probably was the wrong thing to do. And I, I even mentioned that in my uh, paper was that uh, what Japan did, like you can you can do kind of that that hindsight 2020 thing where you say, well, obviously it wasn't warranted, uh, but 
this is what Japan was being told by international organizations, ICRP, and saying like, well, this is what we recommend at this level. Go ahead and tell them they're going to have to permanently move. Uh, so what they did was what they were told was the right thing. Um, so it, it feels like we're due, we're ripe for change in that. And yeah. yeah. Well, I, I think these uh, the accidents that did happen most regrettable was Chernobyl, of course. Uh, but the long-term effects of them and the fact that they were crazy conditions that led to both Chernobyl and Fukushima, uh, it, it almost goes to show that nuclear is still pretty darn safe, even when it goes wrong. Like, uh, that kind of is a an unbelievable statement, but you know, I I think in general it just goes to show that it's not the demon people make it out to be. And talking about other concerns about nuclear power that people have, um, some think the radioactivity from uranium mining and the spent fuel is a serious problem for the public health and the environment. Do you do you agree? And if so, are there good solutions for these problems? Well, I don't think that there are serious problems. I think there are things that you have to manage. And and they actually have been, like uh, mining, for example, certainly has had some serious problems in the past. Like, you know, there's <clears throat> historical levels of lung cancer in, you know, back in the, uh, well, in the late 40s and the 50s and 60s, uh, there was a tremendous push for for uranium and uh, it was really a high priority for mining. And that was, of course, when they were starting to build a lot of reactors. And and uh, a lot of that in the southwest United States, a lot of the mining was done by Navajos, who uh, ended up, a fair number of them, getting lung cancer. But that was really avoidable, a lot of it, because a lot of that comes from radon that they were breathing in when they were in these pit mines. And had they ventilated the mines, that would have been much less of a problem. But then there were uh, residual effects from tail pilings from pit and open mines. And and uh, those things have been remediated in the U.S. now. But most of that kind of mining is not so common anymore. There there has been a new type of, of uh, mining oh, starting a couple decades ago. Well, actually a little bit longer than that, but it's been a coming along much more strongly called in situ recovery, ISR, or sometimes in situ leach mining. And what that does is takes advantage of the fact that that uranium uh, dissolves in water quite well when it's, when it's, um, uh, when it's uh, in a reduced fashion. And then when it gets into soils and gets oxidized, it precipitates out. And so a lot of the, the uranium is down in the ground in old stream beds where it has bound up to the material. And you can uh, inject uh, water with a baking soda solution that reduces that and brings it back into solution and then simply pump the uranium out of the aquifer and you run it into a plant where it goes through through uh, columns that extract the uranium and then return the water to the ground. And that's the majority way that mining is done for uranium anymore. And it's much safer. There's little radiation to worry about around it. There are some things you still have to take care of, just like any source, you have to keep people from being too close to it. But it's much easier to 
to take effect on. So really, as far as a serious problem, no, I don't think it's serious. It's something that's easily managed and and has really changed a lot of how uranium mining is done. And furthermore, it's been done in Texas for a long time, and there have been a number of studies on the health effects of that by health physicists and scientists, and they found that there have never been any increased risks in cancers around the sites that have been doing that for 30 or 40 years. So it seems to be a very safe way to do mining. Right. And I was going to say, the mining is a lot less polluting and hazardous, and I think people still have concerned about the waste and stuff. And I was wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit about the waste too. Well, yes, I think that is certainly uh, what maybe more people are concerned about than than almost anything else about nuclear power. And, and that's kind of unfortunate too, because it uh, reflects an idea that uh, we don't really know what to do about it. But in in fact, uh, it's really not so difficult to deal with. France is probably the world leader in handling spent nuclear fuel. We'll call that call it that instead of nuclear waste because it really isn't waste. It has usable fuel in it, and it can be reused. And so uh, in France, they reprocess or recycle it. Actually, reprocessing of that was developed in the United States, but we don't do it. But France does, and most other uh, regions in the world that have nuclear power do reprocess or recycle the fuel. And uh, so uh, in my book, I describe going to the places where they do that in France. But basically, they extract the uranium and plutonium and make it into the plutonium. They make into new uh, fuel elements that are used in, in reactors. And the... So after you extract the uranium and plutonium that are potential new fuels, the rest of the highly radioactive fission products is much easier to deal with. And they vitrify it or turn it into a glass, and then they store it in areas. I was in one of them that it's about the size of a basketball court, and they have three of these, and they were building a fourth one. I'm not sure if it's there now or not, but that is all of the waste for 58 reactors that have been running for almost 50 years. And then the plutonium is about 1% plutonium, and they enrich it in another plant to about 8% for new fuel pellets. It's called MOX fuel. And then they burn it up in reactors. And France gets about 10% of the electricity uh, from their system comes from the recycled plutonium in, in this MOX fuel. And just recently, actually, just in the last few months, I've been reading some articles about a process that Russia is doing called Remix, making fuel. It's just still really being in the studying phases. They're just now using it in a test reactor. But they recycle both the uranium and the plutonium in new fuel and burn it up. So one thing this does is it recognizes that actually there's real fuel there. So it's it's like, you know, with... Uh, with burning some other kind of a fuel or say you put a gasoline in your car and about a fourth of the gasoline you just pour on the ground because you're not going to use it. And here the idea is you should take that spent nuclear fuel and extract it and you get about 25% more fuel out of it. But we don't do that in the United States. We simply, the plans are simply to store it and 
It's stored in cooling pools on site of the reactors for many years, sometimes up to the lifetime of the reactor. Uh, increasingly, it's being put in what's called dry cask storage, where uh, you take the fuel rods out of the cooling pools and then you put them in in um, steel-lined uh, big uh, casks that are sitting on concrete pads, and then there there's a concrete shell around them, and they can be stable that way easily. You can can handle it for fifty or a hundred years, and uh, then you might have to redo things. But the amount of storage is really quite small compared to because because radium is so uranium is so energy dense. But you know we've had plans for decades to build a a large uh, facility at Yucca Mountain that I'm sure you've heard about that right. is uh, would be a, a long term solution to this. So you would take the the waste from dry cast storage and, and store it there. But uh, it's really, in my mind, it's always been a political, not a scientific and engineering problem. Oh yeah. And there's just always been a huge amount of politics tied up in it. Um, and, but it's quite feasible. It could be done. We could be doing it right now if we wanted to, but we, it, politics just doesn't allow it. And it's one of those situations where, EPA requirements are really quite absurd. And partly this was enforced by the courts, and it's again based on LNT kind of analysis. And they had requirements, have requirements that for a million years after they put waste in there, it would have to be at levels that are well below background levels that we <sighs> experience all the time. And so that's one of those situations that gets into the area of being just doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah, I'd, I'd say uh, the waste issue was or is the most ridiculous red herring for nuclear. It's It's been used to scare the crap out of people, and it's really a very manageable issue. It's almost to the point where we've all been lied to about it, you know? Yeah. Well, and what people don't realize that we actually do have long-term storage for radio radioactive materials for high level radioactivity and that's done but it's it's restricted just to the military and that's in a site called the whip site waste isolation pilot plant outside of carlsbad new mexico and we've been storing stuff there for years and it's in salt mines and actually i don't want us to do that for the spent nuclear fuel because it's something that you can't retrieve and so it's not a good solution to actually put in my view to put this kind of reusable fuel there because there's going to be a time in the future where we're going to want to extract all the energy we can out of that. Mm -hmm. Right. It's interesting how I, I like what you're saying, Phil, like the whole being lied to type of thing. Like I, I nuclear power and new advocates, us, we, we should be really mentioning how uh, the waste, so-called waste is, the advantage that nuclear has like it's a huge advantage that nuclear has there's such a tiny amount of it and we know how to handle it uh, yeah. compared to other energy sources yeah and i'm not implying that it's not a complicated thing i mean this mm -hmm. stuff is highly radioactive it will kill you if you got very yeah. close to it and so but on the other hand we've been there's all kinds of experience doing it it's been mm -hmm. done very effectively and safely for decades and there's no reason why we couldn't be doing it now. But, but in fact, you know, we were building a reprocessing plant 
to use high uh, uh, to take plutonium in weapons and and use it in fuel. But in South Carolina, they were building a plant, and it was cost overruns, and it was finally canceled just about a year ago. And so we just approach these things in a way that, to me, just don't make any sense. Yeah. So uh, on to our next question, um, why do we need nuclear power to fight global warming? Well, <laughs> yeah, I think that's kind of gets back to how we started this talking about yeah. how environmental things and clearly global warming is in my mind. It, it's really, you know, uh, like in, in my growing up years, there were seemed like kind of existential questions about the environment. And that's where we're at now, too. And uh, we really do have to take really great measures to try to to deal with this. And uh, fossil fuels are, you know, the biggest contributing factor the, to this. And so nuclear is used, of course, almost exclusively in electricity production. And electricity is takes about 40% of our whole energy budget in the United States to make electricity. And of that, fossil fuels currently account for about 55% of that electricity, Nuclear has consistently, over about three decades, has provided about 20% of electricity, even though our electricity needs have gone up and up. But nuclear has become more efficient, and it's been able to meet that need. And so, you know, it doesn't have any uh, a very minimal carbon dioxide production in the whole life cycle. That includes mining and everything. And that's the way you have to look at, at all kinds of energies is look at the entire life cycle to see what the consequences are. And so uh, coal is really the biggest problem, both in the United States and, and around the world. And so much of energy that's used, uh, especially for producing electricity, comes from coal. And it's particularly in more the underdeveloped world where it's, it's a really a major issue. So, uh, you know, it's such a big problem that we really have to do everything we can do to try to get away from fossil fuels. And as an intermediate step, natural gas has been, uh, you know, with the advent of fracking, natural gas has actually made a big difference in reducing carbon dioxide. The United States produces less carbon dioxide. Now it's been pretty consistently going down over the last few years. And, it, and we produce less now than we did in about 2005. And that's largely... Uh, largely because coal reduction has gone down. And much of that, more than half of it anyway, has been because we've been burning more natural gas. And uh, so also uh, renewables have made uh, some difference in that. But so renewables, you know, solar and wind are important. And I think they're, they're certainly part of the solution. But too many people, especially environmental people, think, hey, we can just have wind and solar and that'll be it and it'll be a perfect world. But unfortunately, they have issues that that's just really not realistic at all. And um, part of the problem is the best solar and wind uh, locations where you have the best resources for it, since they're quite inefficient sources because their energy density is extremely low. And so 
they're not where most people live. So the Southwest is where the solar is the very best. And we, we're pretty good here in Colorado. We have pretty good sun and we have actually pretty good wind resources, but wind resources are mostly in the Midwest, the best resources. And so you have to build long transmission lines. It makes it very expensive, but they're very intermittent. You know, I keep track of, I actually have solar panel. I have a grid tie-in system in my house and and actually, full disclosure, uh, we, my wife has a farm in Kansas, the family farm, and we actually have a lease with a, with Next Era Wind Energy to, they're proposing to build a wind farm there. So I don't have any problem with that, but the, the problem I do have is to think that it can meet all the needs because intermittency really is a big problem. I monitor my system and, you know, we have a lot of times through the years that where you can go for several days with almost no solar. And of course it obviously is very low in the winter time and it, it's best in the summertime. Wind is kind of the opposite. It's stronger in the, in the winter and lower in the summer but it's also stronger at night and lower in the day. So that's not as helpful. So there's all these intermittency problems that require a huge amount of storage. And that adds a great deal of expense and also environmentally damaging uh, elements if you're looking at storage and, and really big storage like building dams where you do pump storage, which is the kind of thing you really need to have a long duration energy storage of a few days, which would be essential. And that, that is just something that um, is not likely to happen on a large scale. So the intermittency problems cause instability in electrical systems. And so you get brownouts and things like that. So once, once you have, I don't know the exact number, there's been a lot of studies on this. And some people claim you can do this with 100% and make it stable. But I, I think that's really not experience is going to show that's that's not really going to work and a lot of data suggests that once you get up about a little over a third or 40 percent you start having reliability issues and then you know there are some environmental issues visual issues and their efficiency is so low that you have to way overbuild to get that so you know solar is maybe 20 percent efficient when you take into account when it's available and all that. So what's called the capacity factor and wind is around 40. Uh, some newer ones I think can be about 45%. So you greatly overbuild and, and then you don't have it available when you need it or when it's all really good conditions, you have too much of it and you don't know quite what to do with it. So it causes really enormous problems. And even so with all the great amount of, of, of building of wind and solar that we've had, um, wind provide in 2020, the latest data that I've put together and it, wind provided 8.4% of our electricity and solar 2.2% and nuclear was providing 20%. And also they only last about 20 to 25 years and they become less efficient every year. And so, you know, there are a lot of problems with that. And I, I don't think we can depend on that as, as the solution and therefore nuclear comes in as a, a really tremendous uh, possibility that that can certainly could allow to completely take over the use of coal and actually cut into a lot of the the use of natural gas because after all natural gas has half the amount of CO2 
production when it's burned as coal does. But also there's a fair amount of leakage in the system of methane and methane is far more uh, in the short run uh, is much more of a stronger greenhouse gas than, than carbon dioxide is. So methane and, and natural gas has, you know, its issues. So uh, in my mind, uh, we really need to increase the percentage of electricity from nuclear to maybe half of our electricity. And um, I think that that is something that really would be feasible. And it would reactors, you know, the one good thing about them is you can build them where they're needed. So you put them in where population is dense because the footprint for a nuclear reactor is a few acres. Whereas to so a gigawatt uh, electrical capacity is sort of a typical normal reactor now, and that can be placed on a few acres. It takes about 400 square miles of a wind farm to get that kind of of output, and it takes about 50 square miles of solar panels to do that. So there's a huge difference in the scale here. Now. Uh, a problem is that, especially in the U.S., we've kind of lost the technology to build reactors. And there are currently two reactors that are being finished up in at, called the Vocal Plant in um, in South Carolina. And they uh, hopefully, pardon me, uh, in Georgia. In Georgia, yeah, okay, in South, yeah, it was the other one in, that they canceled in South Carolina. Yeah, thanks. And uh, so. Uh, they are uh, have come in way over cost and and taking much longer because we haven't been building these. But worldwide, China is cranking out reactors, and South Korea builds reactors, and Russia builds reactors, and and uh, France is building reactors, and and the technology is there to do that. And furthermore, uh, there's a new generation reactors, especially small modular reactors that like new scale and natrium reactors that can really transform the scene, I think. And so I think it's certainly feasible to do this. And I think it's essential if we really are going to, to seriously try to tackle the issues of global warming, because to, I think it's naive to believe that you can just build more and more solar and wind and that you'll be able to take care of it. I think we'll have, uh, a great deal of problems if we take that approach. Right. I, I think nuclear is one of those things that you come to in the climate dilemma through process of elimination. It's like you kind of you kind of think of all the other sources of power and then you see all the problems with them and then you're just like, well, that leaves nuclear and it just kind of creepily st ends up being the solution that just keeps cropping up to be, you know, this is probably the best option we have. And we're starting to reach the end of our time here, and uh, I was wondering if there's anything else you'd like to add to this enlightening conversation. Oh, I think <laughs> we, we've given it a pretty good shot and covered a lot of ground here. So uh, I would just say that, you know, just to reiterate that I think we are facing really major issues that we have to tackle right away. And, and energy, the, the decisions that you make last for decades. And so we can't really wait around for 10 years 
and 20 years and decide these kind of things. It's what we do now that are going to play out. And unfortunately, right now, more and more coal-fired plants are being built in Europe, in Germany, because they're eliminating their nuclear power and they're going more to coal. And China is building coal-fired power plants around the world, actually. And they have huge energy needs, but those plants will potentially run for 40 or 50 years. And so we are in the position right now where the decisions that we make have a huge impact on on the future of the world. And I think there are solutions there, and they're safe solutions. We have a huge amount of history of running nuclear, providing a lot of carbon dioxide-free energy. We know how to do this, and there are new things being developed, and I think there should be a, a a worldwide surge in building nuclear. So where can listeners go to learn more about you and your work? Well, I'm one of those old guys who's not really into social media very much, so they can't really look me up on Facebook. Uh, however, I mean, I guess if people really are interested in this, I would encourage them to go read my book because it goes into more detail on a lot of these things. I, some of the data, I mean, it's written in 2013, so some of the specifics about how much solar and stuff are are not uh, up to date. But nevertheless, I think all the principles in it are, are accurate and right. And and I think it's a, a pretty good broad view of of where things are. Yeah, so... Dr. Michael Fox, uh, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us. It has been a pleasure talking to you, talking about uh, radiation biology and nuclear, just everything you're saying, music to my ears. <laughs> it's been a lot of fun. Appreciate it. Well, I've certainly enjoyed it, too. I haven't had a chance to really expound on this with somebody that wants to hear it. <laughs> my family gets tired of hearing these things. <laughs> <laughs> Same with my family. That's why I do social media. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much, you guys, for contacting me and, and inviting me to do this. It's been a blast. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. Bye now. That was a great conversation with Dr. Fox. We went through quite a lot of material, and we definitely went a bit long with this one. I think it was well worth it, though. Oh, totally. It is important that we did get into the details so we could really get a good review of what radiation is, how it works, and its effects on us and the environment. So, Phil, what were some of your thoughts about our talk? I don't want to be too cliche in saying this, but the discussion just goes to show that knowledge is indeed power. So much of the fear surrounding nuclear power is because many people just don't know enough about radiation and radioactivity. And this ignorance has led to some really bad policies and has led to unnecessary roadblocks for nuclear power. However, once you learn about something, the less scary it usually becomes. The unknown is what can cause fear, and education is a great antidote. Hopefully, we have helped our listeners become less apprehensive about radiation. How about you, DJ? What did you take away from the discussion? I thoroughly enjoy talking to Dr. Fox. He really knows his stuff. I know that our chat lasted well over an hour, but I feel like I could have kept on talking to him for 
hours more. I honestly can't wait to keep in touch with him and to continue to bounce ideas off of him in relation to radiation and nuclear power. Awesome. Well, we want to thank Dr. Fox, who is a great source of information and an amazing teacher. Colorado State University is lucky to have him. His pro-nuclear advocacy and his book, Why We Need Nuclear Power, have definitely made an impact. Absolutely. This has been Radiation is Part of Life. Thanks to everyone listening, and we will see you all next time. If you like what you heard and want more content, you can support Americans for Nuclear Energy's Climate Fix podcast on a per-episode basis with Patreon. Link in the description. To support Americans for Nuclear Energy and our general mission, visit our website at www.americansfornuclearenergy.org. All words, again, that's www.americansfornuclearenergy.org. We have a link to donate with PayPal under the Mobilize page. You can also purchase some Americans for Nuclear Energy swag under our store page. This will really help us pay for the little things, especially online service fees, to keep our organization running. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and YouTube. Lastly, we really want your feedback. Let us know your thoughts, questions, and concerns. We have a message form on our website under the About section. Or you can email us directly at main at americansfornuclearenergy.org. All words. Again, that's main at americansfornuclearenergy.org. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Americans for Nuclear Energy's Climate Fix podcast. We'll see you next time. Edited and produced by Jonna Adams.